Hello everyone, Jamie here. Uh, before we get to the episode, I wanted to make a quick note that this episode was originally recorded as a live stream on YouTube, and what you will be hearing here is an abridged version of the conversation that happened on that live stream. So if you want to hear the full conversation, you can go over to youtube.com slash at plain English and check out the live stream entitled Open Science Roundtable. Additionally, I recorded a follow-up one-on-one conversation after this conversation with Brian Kopitz, one of the guests on the live stream. I was originally going to append that to this conversation, but I believed it deserved its own mini-episode, so that will be released next Tuesday. With that out of the way, uh, please enjoy this abridged version of the Open Science Roundtable live stream. Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome to In Plain English, uh, a podcast that is dedicated to making science uh, approachable, open source, and jargon-free. My name is Jamie Moffa. I am the host of In Plain English. I am also an MD-PhD student at Washington University in St. Louis, doing my PhD in neuroscience. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by our three amazing guests, Brian Kopitz, Michael Eisen, and Alexandra Elbakian. Um, thank you all for being on this live stream today. Nice to be here. So why don't you each uh, give a quick little introduction about yourselves and what you do? Uh, my name is Brian Kopitz. I'm an assistant professor here uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. I started my lab a couple years ago where we uh, try to understand how neurons are connected into circuits and also use uh, human tissue or preclinical pain starts. My name is Michael Eisen. I'm a professor at the University of California in Berkeley in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. I run a lab studying fly developmental biology and dabble in other things. And I uh, was the founder of the Public Library of Science, which is a, an early effort to try to make science open. And I am more recently the editor-in-chief of eLife, which is doing various experiments in open publishing. I'm Alexandra, and I'm a PhD student um, in philosophy, and uh, I am a creator of a website uh, where people can have a free access uh, to like uh, tens of millions of academic research papers that uh, they would uh, usually otherwise uh, have to pay for. So, but online website, they can access them for free. Right, um, so let's get started with some of the questions. Um, So I first wanted to start out talking about how did each of you become interested in the project of making science more open and accessible? You know, I I started science before the internet came along. And when, you know, we had to go to the library to get papers and somebody was paying for subscriptions to the journals we had in the library, but it wasn't really it wasn't really evident to anybody involved in the process, involved in science, really. And there were all sorts of limitations to how we could use the literature, but they were largely limitations of technology. You know, we had the printing press and the the postal service as our means of, of creating articles. And then, you know, then right as I was a graduate student and a postdoc, the internet came along and science publishers were really early uh, users of the internet. I mean, some of the first websites were websites from science publishers. And you could see in the early days of the internet, this new world where um, where all of the scientific literature was available to anybody with a computer and an internet connection for free, and that any any scientist could, could 
could use it to pursue their interests in whatever way they wanted. But we quickly came up against the, the fact that publishers didn't see that that way. What they saw was a, a chance to make money and a chance to, you know, invent new ways to to make it more difficult for people to to use the scientific literature. In some ways, it became harder to get access to content in the in the post-internet days than the pre-internet days. And so I, as a postdoc, realized that we had this huge problem in that the, the structures of science publishing and the structures of science were doing something ludicrous, which was putting you know, paywalls behind, you know, putting science behind paywalls. And, and so that, you know, that's what set me on, 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 on this journey. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear sort of the historical perspective. Uh, I started my uh, bachelor studies in 2005. And, uh, well, I remember that even when I was uh, back in school, and I wanted to read some book about science, I had to go to uh, uh, of course, I didn't uh, want to buy it, so I had to go to some uh, website where I could download it for free. So basically, a pirate, some pirate website. And like uh, many years later, when I was working on my uh, research project at the university, and that was like um, connected to neuroscience, and I started uh, researching for more information about uh, my project, and I encountered that... Uh, all, all was pay wallet and I didn't have access. Uh, so uh, I saw that hmm, there should be some website uh, on the internet or something like Torrent, perhaps, <laughs> where I could access or uh, easily download these uh, academic papers for free. But uh, there was no such website. Uh, so th that was the first time that I, when I uh, was thinking about it, uh, some tools should be created so people can access academic journals for free without easily. And uh, also, it, it was the time I started reading some research blogs uh, online, and uh, the topic of open access and open science was uh, actively discussed uh, by different researchers. So, and the whole like atmosphere was, the consensus was that uh, uh, science should be open and it should be free to access. Yeah, so I've kind of come into it uh, more gradually, and I also kind of grew up always being able to get papers. But from my perspective, there was a lot of time in publishing that you spend, you know, preparing figures a certain way or telling a story and then redoing it and jumping through a lot of hoops that really is important to publish findings, but how much did it really change our conclusions and how much time did we spend and money spent on that versus moving forward? and doing kind of the next set of experiments. So I was always a bit frustrated by the fact that it really depended on what you were working on as well, or certain journals and things like that, versus just you do good science, get it out there, and kind of let the scientific community be the judge. So I think that actually takes us nicely into the first thing that I wanted to talk about was what is the current state of publishing science. Like if you are a researcher and you've done these experiments and you want to get them out into the scientific world, um, can we talk a little bit about like what is the current and traditional state of how science publishing works right now? Well, I would say that uh, uh, today as uh, open access movement, they made a lot of success in the case that uh, a lot of uh, journals are now like offering open access option and uh, many funders are requiring 
for new research publications to be open by default. But also there is a problem uh, today that um, the, there are pay, uh, no paywalls for readers, but uh, on the other side, uh, there are paywalls for authors. Uh, so uh, today you have to pay like uh, crazy amounts of some, like many thousands of dollars uh, to be published in open access. And uh, perhaps it's not the problem for the researchers in the United States or Europe, uh, but in other parts of the world, uh, many people like they are against open access because of this. Yeah, just to pop in, I mean, I think still, even though we're 25 years, we're 25 years into the internet, the dominant model for publishing is still the one that was invented for the printing press, which is that most journals still, you know, you submit a paper to the journal, they send it out for peer review, they decide, make a decision about whether it, it belongs in their journal, something that, you know, made sense when you had a print a uh, you know, 10,000 copies of a journal and mail them around the world to subscribers, but makes no sense on the internet. And then they, then they, if they decide to publish it, they put it online, but they only make it available to, um, to subscribers. So for journals like that, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the, the world has access to it. Thank, thankfully, Alexandra <laughs> makes sure that people have access to it anyway, despite the fact that the publishers are putting it behind a paywall. But, and you know, I should say that I'm a researcher at a very wealthy university in the United States. I use SciHub every day to get access to papers because even at, uh, in, our, in our institution, a large fraction of the papers that I want to, that I need for my research are not available to me. So um, I want to start this by saying thank you for solving a massive problem, even for us. I just wanted to comment that uh, that is also a very popular opinion uh, that uh, you only need to use SciHub only in like in developing countries or in other words, in poor countries. But you don't need it in wealthy countries such as the United States. The part uh, this, that I've been involved in that Alexandra was talking about is is kind of trying to shift the focus away from paywalls. In an ideal world, the, the people who fund science would just say, look, it, it's absolutely important to making science work that nobody ever has to pay to publish or read, right? It's kind of absurd that, that the costs of publishing aren't borne centrally such that everybody can publish their science and everybody can read their science. But, you know, the, the alternative that arose to, to subscriptions was to have some kind of upfront payment that covered all the costs that journals incur in the process and to make them freely available. Obviously, you know, in a in a world where publishers are driven primarily by a motive to make a profit, they've turned that into a way to to restrict who can publish as opposed to who can read to publish. So we're kind of in this terrible world right now where where if you're using traditional journals, you have no, you know, you have no real choice but to either force someone else to pay to read your work or pay to have it made open access, which is obviously something not everybody has the the resources to do. And so, but we're still in a, we're still in a, a situation where most scientists feel like they have an obligation because, you know, to their careers and their students and others to participate in a system that pretty much everybody agrees is terrible. And in thir almost 30 years of, of being involved in this movement, it's almost unheard of for me to meet a scientist who thinks we do this in a sane way. Everybody thinks the system is is stupid. Everybody thinks it's 
too expensive, too restrictive, that it's unfair. You know, that basically only people at extremely wealthy institutions have full access to the scientific literature and full access to being able to publish wherever they want to. It's an incredible problem for for science. And it's kind of an embarrassment that it's taken us this long to, to even make small progress. I mean, making the scientific literature available is is like is absolutely essential to the to the world. It's stunning that we're still having this conversation in 2023 when when you know journals started going online in 1994. And so yeah. <laughs> yes, about that. actually about uh, so you say like basically very good things about SciHub and my work, but uh, I didn't have uh, hear this uh, from some uh, official position. So so that just uh, some university. I would say that or something like that. So Saikabe never gets any like official recognition as anywhere. And uh, even, for example, uh, at some at many universities, uh, uh, the access to Saikabe is blocked by the university network. Yeah. The fact that institutions aren't celebrating Saikabe tells you pretty much everything you need to know about why the system is so terrible. Well, I, I do think that there can be some kind of a political issue here. Uh, so Saikap is perceived as being some kind of a uh, project uh, connected to Russia and etc. It's terrible that that's the the view. I, I people should should you know just use Saikap all the time. If everybody just got all their access through Saikap all the time everywhere, the industry would collapse and we'd be in a much better place. So um, I'm kind of interested in, um, to talk to Alexander a little bit specifically about this. Like, what are some of the challenges that you've faced in? design like making this website be available making science be available and like well actually i have been doing uh, like a number of uh, talks uh, uh, talks uh, using zoom about setup so i have been invited uh, to some universities and to some scholarly societies uh, to talk about setup and that is uh, like a very a very uh, how to say they, they, of, uh, they ask very often so this question is often repeated. What kind of challenges I face, and etc. and etc. Well, off the top of my head, I wouldn't say any. I don't remember any challenges. I just my mind doesn't work that way to remember challenges and think about them. So if you like uh, make your question more specific, then perhaps I can answer. I mean, do you, you said that you like your university like blocks access? Do you find often? that you run into other universities or like governments trying to like take down Sci-Hub or like block access to Sci-Hub? Well, yes, uh, Sci-Hub is uh, obviously it's being blocked in uh, a number of countries, <laughs> including uh, Great Britain and France and Italy and Sweden and uh, Russia, Austria, and uh, perhaps I forgot <laughs> to mention uh, also <laughs> Some, and also it's being blocked by some by universities of uh, they do it on their own. Yes, there have been just a number of uh, lawsuits against Sci-Hub in many countries. And yes, after and after these lawsuits, uh, the Sci-Hub the access to Sci-Hub was blocked. But I would also uh, mention that uh, Sci-Hub basically uh, never um, like had any presence uh, in the court. Uh, so it was. It uh, was decision by default by different courts in different countries, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just uh, right now there is uh, an ongoing lawsuit uh, against Sci-Hub 
and also library genesis as a sister website to set up uh, that is ongoing in india can i actually ask alexander just on that note like so i've i've noticed that that the publishers have made it more difficult for you to get access to content recently has that you know have you seen the publishers respond not just legally but but practically to yeah yeah oh, yes actually uh, uh, so Cup is uh, using uh, like university passwords uh, to uh, get access to uh, libraries of the universities uh, to download uh, like a payable material and they have been blocking uh, these passwords uh, so like uh, they're just uh, trying to figure out uh, how Cup is downloading every packet and they, then they're trying uh, to then they're like um, notifying the university uh, to block the, uh, this student account and etc and also as uh, they wrote recently i think um, maybe just for uh, one year they have introduced a javascript based uh, system uh, that uh, make um, uh, like downloading uh, the papers uh, uh, automatically like bulk download somewhat harder. Oh, so Elsevier, for people who don't know, is the largest um, like owner of uh, public scientific publications in the U.S., in the world. Are they the largest scientific publisher in the world? Or Yeah, they are. On the other side, uh, the lucky side is that uh, Sahab already has almost uh, all papers. Uh, so the percentage of new papers uh, relative uh, to uh, all those papers that Sahab already downloaded is relatively small. So then I kind of wanted to talk about um, what are there are there have been some recent developments in the open science sphere in terms of attempts to make science more accessible. Actually, the inspiration for me reaching out to all of you back in the summer was a um, I don't remember if it was an executive order or if it was um, um, internal memo from the Biden White House about um, publicly funded science needing to be publicly available. So can you all talk about what some of the like recent developments in this space are, um, possibly specifically related to the memo, and then how that is uh, impacting scientific publishing like currently? Well, uh, I just wanted to comment. Of course, I am not an expert on what is happening in the United States, but as far as I know, uh, in the United States, they uh, were, were discussing uh, the open access issue uh, for about 20 years or even more. But uh, so far, uh, nothing changed. That, that, that is a correct diagnosis. I mean, I think that the, the White House did something, you know, positive in, in saying that, you know, basically setting some ground rules that say that if the public is funding science, the science should be publicly available. And rather than trying to get too much into the weeds of how the industry of publishing works, they kind of just are saying, look, we'll, if you write a paper and it's funded by the federal government, that you need to make sure that paper is freely available to people. And how exactly that happens is left to the, the, um, the discretion of the different agencies that are funding science. But I think that, you know, it, it, it's still, we have to wait and see a little bit about how this gets implemented. And the the U.S. government's approach is, you know, we'll we'll let the publishers do what they do. We're not going to interfere with it per se. But but we, you know, 
the government has a web has access to the internet. Science authors have access to the internet, and that I hope that what will emerge from that is a kind of parallel, a parallel system whereby you know papers funded by the U.S. government are made freely available by the U.S. government, as opposed to by kind of you know negotiating with publishers per se. I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's 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 not yet clear exactly what's going to happen, but. You know, there. You know, as Alexander points out, as long as ago as 1999, the NIH was talking about, you know, setting up a parallel infrastructure for publishing that would basically solve all these problems at once. It would be a place where all funded, you know, federally funded research was made available. Peer reviews would be layered on top of it. They wouldn't be used to restrict who could access it, and that it would be, you know, centrally funded. That the interest, it would be treated like infrastructure, just like, I mean, just like, you know, I work in genome science. If like, if, if you had had a world where the genome databases were set up like publishing databases, where every time you wanted to share a sequence, you had to pay. And every time you wanted to download it, you had to download them one at a time and pay a fee. The science that we do in this field would have been impossible. And that exists because the funding agencies of the world see it as a value for science to just fund that centrally. There's no reason that 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 they shouldn't do that for publishing, right? Like rather than fighting Sci-Hub, the governments of the world should be funding Sci-Hub and something like it to create a place where every piece of science is made freely available to everybody. And you can you can submit your science for free and you can read your science for free. It's very obvious what we need to do in my mind. It was obvious 25 years ago. The problem is we're just seem incapable of actually of actually getting there because, you know, in part because publishers are very powerful. They make billions of dollars a year and they have influence in all the places that that make decisions about policy. And scientists have been unwilling to um, to break the mold. We you know, every time you send a paper to any journal that that is limited in who can use the, the the resource either as an author or reader, you're continuing the the system. And it's a kind of a damning statement about science that we've, we, it's not like people aren't aware of the problem, right? Everybody, we've been aware of the problem for almost a, over a quarter of a century, and yet we've been unable to solve it because, I mean, you know, honestly, because of some combination of careerism and profit seeking. So, you know, I hope that the federal government thing that the, the the Biden administration did, which was a step in the right direction, because it says it establishes a principle, right? Establishing the principle that federally funded research should be free is great, but now they have to execute. What I would also add is that, that it was a very good point uh, that you say that many countries uh, should be funding SACAP. And actually the, uh, the solution is uh, uh, that this issue uh, should be discussed on the level of, of the United Nations uh, in the same way like climate change is being discussed. Well, I, I actually have seen that in the, on the United Nations web, website, uh, they have like uh, this uh, open access pages, uh, some general words about the support of open access, but they never mentioned, for example, SACAP. And it, it was quite surprising to me why, because SACAP <laughs> was quite a big event. Uh, in, in science, if you if you measure it by impact, but uh, for for the United Nations, for the United Nations, uh, it's like uh, it's, it's like it doesn't exist at all. This issue doesn't exist. I, I I yeah. I mean, I agree. In principle, the UN 
could do something, but they've not. They, they they've had many opportunities and they have uh, kind of not delivered. So, um, you know, probably rely, relying on governments to solve this problem for us in the long run is not the right the right solution. I mean, like it's great. Like Alexander took it into our own hands. It's it's like we, science has the power to change the way this hap- operates. We're not. We don't have to wait for mandates from governments, right? Like this could all be done tomorrow if we chose to, and we don't. We just don't choose to. Yeah, but if you look at the history of sciences, and just found uh, that it was like basically created by government. Uh, so government established uh, this Royal Society of uh, London and etc. And then uh, the first academic journal was created, and so on. I mean, I'm interested in so if. You know, what are some of the barriers then to science scientists taking things into their own hands that's like outside of the government having to step in and say like, oh, this is how this is going to work, right? Uh, I, I personally, I, I try to select open access journal to publish the papers the time required to publish for PhD. Yeah, and I agree with that. It's, it's, I mean, that is our goal, but we also operate within a system that awards, grants, and hiring processes based on some entrenched hierarchy of papers, right? So it's like, okay, if you, one concern is always, if you go with the open access, then are you going to have those same opportunities as someone who um, is still going for the traditional model of publishing? Because that's what uh, is kind of awarded. I mean, I know that that's what everybody does, right? Everybody says this is about, you know, I have to do this because it's the best thing for my career. And I'm going to take this this choice that's bad for, that's bad for, that I know, admit, is bad for science and bad for the public. And I'm going to do it because it's good for my career. If I said the same thing about what field I worked on, if in my grants I said, you know what I really want to work on is this wacky, this wacky organism, but I'm going to, I'm going to work on, I'm going to work on this particular subject, whatever field it is. I'm going to study this problem, even though I think it's a dumb problem. And I think working on this problem isn't actually good for the world, but I'm going to do it because it's good for my career. Right. If if we if we justified our science that way, we wouldn't do any science. We wouldn't ever do, do anything useful, even though probably to some small extent that's true in the way that people choose problems. I've just always been curious why people are so comfortable sort of throwing throwing science and the the system under the bus um, in the names of their careers around publishing when they wouldn't do it so much they wouldn't feel comfortable doing it in other in other areas right so uh, what I'm interested in hearing is like why why people feel so comfortable rationalizing their publishing behavior in in explicitly careerist terms that, and they're not in a kind of almost any other area of science, right? Like I think one of the things we've talked about a lot is is trying, I think, in a way to strike a balance between those two, to not, you know, that there's eventually you wanted to shift all to being completely open access, but starting to move the needle in that direction, I think, with the new generation of younger scientists and, and students that are growing up with this discussion front and center, it, it starts to shift the conversation. It's, it's not going to happen overnight by by our lab deciding to only do that, but that why not? Why not? Like, like seriously, like, but like, like, I am curious why, why, why people don't think we could just change it overnight if we we could, right? It would take sort of a massive coordination. Like, you'd need to get 
a at least a plurality, if not a majority, of people doing science in you know the the nations that are producing the largest amount of like scientific output to all decide like we're not going to do this. Why do you think that? Like why? Like seriously, why why don't we all just like if we all just said this is dumb, or like if ten of us or twenty or thirty or fifty or however many said it was dumb and started to do it differently. I mean, this is a viral world. What where I wanted to get to is like, how do how does this change? Yeah. And so I think it's worth exploring, like, if this changes. And you know, I like the idea of it changing from the ground up. I agree. I think there's will it, actually? there's a reason it hasn't. And I was going to add in too that in terms of like you know the generation coming up, I think this links into the issue of like you've got all of these like, you know, idealistic young scientists who are doing their PhDs, right? And there's a huge like drop off to who actually gets to get to the faculty level. And it seems at least from where I'm standing, that in order to do that, you have to be sort of careerist, right? Like I've seen a lot of people leave their PhD or leave their postdoc or decide not to do a postdoc because they perceived that the structure of how science is working is going to require them to do things that they don't want to do or think are ethical or correct or whatever. Right. But, but I, I, I mean, I, I think there's two answers to that question. First of all, I think people vastly overestimate the influence that papers have on careers. Not that it has no influence, but um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of things that influence people's careers, including, you know, where they trained and what they work on and who their advisor was and things like that. I think it's not true that you need high impact publications to get a, get ahead in science. Nobody does the experiment, right? Nobody with papers that would get published in high impact journals routinely shuns them or very few people do. And so we don't, we're scientists, we don't have a control here. We mistake the fact that there's a correlation between where people publish and what jobs they get for, for causality that has never been established, first of all. And second of all, um, even if it were established, I don't understand why, I really do not understand why we, we, accept, we accept that, why as scientists who, who try to change the way the world works and, and you know, change the way people think about science and change the way science works as a career, we're unable and unwilling to tackle this problem. I think it's deeper than just that the system tells you you have to do it. People aren't people are unwilling to tackle this problem. It's it, they're unwilling they're unwilling to absorb anything that looks like a risk to their careers or even a, a possible risk to their careers to change publishing. Whereas that they are willing to absorb risks to their careers for all sorts of other reasons. So it's there's something deeper and something more fundamental about this that I think than just simply saying, well, I have to do it to advance my career. I would uh, actually, from what I know, it's uh, like not actually the matter uh, of career, but uh, the matter of funding. Uh, so the better papers uh, you have published, uh, the better your chances uh, to have your uh, next research project funded. Oh, so that is all controlled by government m money in the end. I, I, in some places it's true, in some cases it's not true. And I think that, that even if it were true, I think people have the, the you know, we have it, like those decisions are at some level made by scientists too, right? Like not everywhere, 
But in most countries, funding decisions are made by scientists at some level. And so we're, if that's true, which it, it is partially true, it's because we make it true. Yeah, but uh, I, I would just add uh, that the problem is that uh, academic uh, publications today are basically the only uh, measure, the only objective measure uh, for researcher. Uh, so it's like uh, you can simply count the number of citations, the, the number of uh, uh, publications, the impact factor of journals, and so you can uh, measure the researchers um, in a, like, say, some kind of a reliable way. Otherwise, uh, the system uh, would collapse uh, because uh, you cannot, uh, like, like just uh, <laughs> uh, assign funding or make uh, uh, decisions about hiring someone uh, just uh, on, just because you like this, this person or you don't like this person. Sure, I, I I think I think that's true, but you don't. But this idea that we need to have this business of publishing be this be the way it is in order to accomplish that goal is flawed, right? The right model before us solves both of these problems at once, right? The right model is one where authors publish their work in something like uh, archive, sci-hub, whatever you want to call it. Authors have control over their papers until they sign away the copyright. If you don't do that, then you never. You can make the papers freely available. So you create a place where everybody publishes everything for free. Whatever costs there are, which would be small, would be borne by governments in proportion to how much they fund science or some formula that that's fair. And then everybody can publish for free and everybody can read for free. Then that becomes the template for peer reviews of all sorts of types and whatever you want to happen, rank, rankings, groupings. Oh, not all those things are done independent of some, you know, anachronistic decision as to whether or not a paper belongs in a particular journal. That's the Internet, right? Like, like that's how the vast majority of the Internet works is people post stuff for free. People access stuff for free. And, you know, somebody's paying, obviously, but things get rated. You get you get grouped, you get lists like there's there's a much there is an infrastructure and a facility in the world with organizing and ranking and finding the flaws in information that's independent of a $10 billion a year publishing industry. We, the, the thing is, we don't need this industry. The industry is, is an obstacle. All of the work, essentially all the work, all the value is done by scientists for free. And the fact that we haven't figured out a way to organize our effort in a, in a manner that, that doesn't require that we pay tons of money to publishers and limit who can participate in one way or another is it's not necessary right we we could solve this problem if we wanted to uh, yes i just wanted to add that i wouldn't be so uh, so much optimistic about internet because today we see that uh, internet became uh, dominated by large monopolistic corporations yes. such as youtube uh, and social media and they basically control and censor yeah. the in how information flows so uh, it's not the kind of thing I, that we want. I agree. I, I, we don't want we don't want science publishing to become Twitter and YouTube and things like that, right? It doesn't have to. That's a, also a choice that people made to let it to let it go that way. If you know, there isn't still lots of in, the parts of the internet that function in a sane and civil manner, although there are fewer of them. I, it's the same problem, right? Like once profit motive takes over the way that things are governed. They go in directions that aren't in the interests of the of the users, and so we've let that happen in publishing, right? We've we've clearly already established that we've given over 
the, the what's best for science to what's best for publishers. I agree that just saying, well, we don't need anybody. Let's throw it all up on the internet and let the internet sort it out also isn't a solution. Chaos isn't, isn't, the, isn't the answer, but that doesn't mean that we're anywhere near the right, the right solution now, right? We, we, can, we, can, we can do it better. I think one of, the, one of the challenges here that I see is if, if you're making a decision on personnel or you're on a study section, there's a bit that almost makes it easier, I guess, sometimes, not saying it's right, but to look at the name of a journal or you know, a certain tier of paper, say, okay, they make a certain cutoff, right? Because it's much more difficult. I would argue this is what we should do, but it's much more difficult to actually read the science if it's out of your field and decide whether it's conducted, you know, in a rigorous way, if you have a hundred applicants or 20 grants on a study section, I think talking to a lot of colleagues, there's a reluctance there to not, not that that's what we should do, but that does the fact that does the fact that somebody at some other journal who you don't necessarily know made a decision to accept a paper for a journal tell you that either it doesn't. Right. So if you want your life to be easy, I can just assign a random score to every paper and we can, we can just reward science based on that. In ancient Greece, uh, they had a democracy system uh, where, where they just randomly assigned people uh, to different positions. And it worked. For a while. <laughs> it always comes back to this, like, what are we trying to accomplish, right, with, with publishing, right? Like, even if it were true that we needed a hierarchy of journals and a traditional publishing system and assigning journal names to accomplish all these things, and even if it was in your best interest as a scientist to publish in these journals to to navigate the system. Doesn't the fact that it's just terrible for the public and terrible for science as a whole, shouldn't that be what governs our governs our behavior? I, I It is true that these conversations always get back to, I have to do it this way because it's good for my career or my student's career or something, or, you know, we, we can't do peer review at grant panels without journal titles. All these are very, you know, parochial, little concern, right? Not that it's a, your concerns about your career is little, it's just, it, they're very local. I think we spend way too little time talking about how the structure of publishing keep, you know, keeps science, help the hold science back. Ultimately, we are serving the public good, right? I think we should ask ourselves the question, like if you took away all these these concerns about careers and the mechanics of advancing your careers and deciding who gets grants for a second and ask what system is best for the public that we serve and then try to engineer in the right career incentives and the right the right, you know, structures for making grants, I think we'd be better off. We should be working backwards from that to say like, okay, our goal is to make everything completely freely available to everybody. And that means both that you have, you don't need Sci-Hub, you know, to access it. It's just all there. Or, you know, maybe Sci-Hub becomes the place you access it, but the, but everything's there without paywalls. It also means that nobody ever has to pay to publish, right? These are two barriers we've erected in, in publishing, you you immediately get to the question of who pays for it, right? I think it's clear that that has to be paid for by the same people who fund science. Even if you pen, spend $10 billion a year on publishing, it's still a small fraction of the total. And also note, they're already paying it. Uh, but uh, when you just uh, uh, told pe uh, tell people that everything must be free, uh, it's immediately, they immediately answered that it is impossible. Somebody has to pay. Sure. The governments have to pay, right? Like, you know, there's lots of things we get access to for free that somebody pays for. 
you know, nobody charges me to walk on the sidewalk, but somebody's paying for it, right? It's free at some level, but it's not free to do. If society is better because science is um, working at, at peak efficiency, then, you know, this is a no, this should be a no brainer. We are starting from like, what is best for the advancement of, the, of science and the public good, and then building in how do we get there? I want to talk about how we get, how do you have to structure something like that? Like, if we agree, that's where we have to end up. How do you actually go about getting there? I mean, people have proposed answers to this for a long time. And, it, you know, probably there is no right answer. There's many different ways you can do it. But something that looks like a place where you can just post your science for free and it's immediately available for free to everybody. So something along the lines of a preprint server where everything, you know, there's some filtering to make sure that it's actually science and not advertising or pornography or whatever else, you know, you don't want to post there, right? There's some screen to make sure that what is being submitted is an actual work of science. So it belongs in the, in the place. If you did that, we know that that costs a, a tiny fraction of total publishing, right? If you have a something like BioArchive or something, which at, at its most expensive costs $100 a paper, which is, uh, which is extreme, you're still spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars instead of $10 billion on, a, on the infrastructure, right? Even if you went to the gold, absolute gold standard, of like, you know, really paying someone to copy edit everything and do all this work to 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 go in there. It's still less than the way less than the $5,000 per paper we currently pay kind of at the level of the whole system. So the the basic infrastructure seems obvious, which is a place where everybody can publish their work and everybody can get access to it for free. And it's funded centrally. Like any big country's science budget could absorb the entire cost of that as a rounding error, right? This is a rounding error in the U.S. science budget. I don't think it should only be funded by the U.S. because I think it should be owned collectively by scientists across the world. So every country that funds science should pitch in in proportion to the amount of science they fund. Then you need a separate system. To I agree with Alexandra. If you, you don't want this to become YouTube where like nasty comments rule the way and it's all a popularity contest, there's like a lot of problems with that too. But we already do peer review. I don't think we do it in a particularly good way, but there's nothing that stops us from then assembling on the side of this system. We could reconstruct the entire current publishing infrastructure where we assign papers to journals if we want to on top of a free thing. We're just, you're just adding a label to the paper. A journal is just a label you put on the paper. I think that's a dumb way to do it, but, but you could easily do that. But we could change the whole system and solve these access problems overnight, just simply by changing the way we organize the the process. Uh, yes, I just wanted to ask about the uh, peer review. So if you just uh, everyone just publishes whatever they want, for example, every university they just start uploading uh, the the, uh, the papers the researchers write, they just start uploading uh, to their university website, and th then there will be a, a kiosk because. Uh, it it's all right. it will, it will be reviewed and so there will, there will be no method right. to select so how do you so how would you do peer like an easy way to do peer review in that system is to say that we're going to fund scientific societies to carry out peer review in their field they already do it with their journals they just don't do it for all their papers right so the, i'm a member of the genetic society of america and they you know they could review peer review all papers in genetics that's how it was before before the rise of, you know, modern 
publishing, right? There were scientific societies that organized publishing in their field. Again, I think there's some inefficiencies and other things in that world, but there's nothing that stops us from doing, because I agree with Alexandra, you need some way for scientists to convey their judgment on papers to their colleagues because it's useful. That's how science progresses. It's not like we just want an undifferentiated mass of 2 million papers every year that you have to wade through on your own. We can organize peer review far better if we just say, here's the, a group of people or multiple groups. It doesn't have to be just one genetic society. We can have four genetic societies, all of which were reviewing papers in, in, their, in their field. And you'd get a multitude of views on the work too. It would be much better than the current Whoever, whatever three reviewers we happened to, to, to pick at the time the paper was published, making the decision that lasts an eternity about how important the work is, right? This society, uh, how, how is it going to select which, uh, which, for example, they have like about million of new papers about genetics uh, published uh, on preprint archives, and how they're going to select which papers they should peer review? We do it, right? But uh, we do it already, right? Those papers all get peer reviewed, right? So, so those 2 million papers all get peer reviewed. So yes, it's like the answer is they wouldn't select. Today's the mechanism is that the, after, uh, they will, the authors will select the journal and uh, send the paper uh, to the selected journal for peer review. So basically today, every journal is a small uh, society. And so we have like, today we have like thousands of different societies. Yeah, 50,000 50, or something, yeah. That's clearly too many, right? And the fact that the fact that papers bounce from one journal to another is inefficient and silly. But the core truth is we do manage to find peer reviewers for virtually all of those papers. We just do it in a very ineffective and inefficient way. We have ideas, other people have ideas about how to, how to match papers to peer reviewers and make sure that every paper gets peer reviewed fairly. And right, it, it, there, are, there are ways you can you could do that, that are better than what we currently do, which is you send it to a journal and then the journal goes and begs people to, to peer review the paper until they get two or three people to do it. And then, right, we're, we're, this system is not working. I guess to the, to the point of badges, because that's you know, something that, so one of the things we do, we, we start, well, when we started, Jenny moved for the lab when, when I first did them, but we had that conversation and we try to do things differently, at least within what we can control within our lab and make those decisions. And I've seen kind of locally within our department decisions being made that don't hold those badges always in as high esteem. I, I don't know what the answer is to it, but some way to, to de-incentivize that. And, and it takes more effort to read the paper, but it's not just like, oh, if you don't have a paper in journal X, Y, and Z, you don't even make the cut, right? I, I've sat on hiring committees for... 20 plus years. I've never seen a person hired because they had a paper in a particular journal. It never happens, right? Have you seen right. people not hired? Because I've never seen people not hired. I, I don't think, I, I mean, I, I, I think it is possible that a, there are people who would have gotten perhaps been scrutinized more if they had had, if the work that they had currently, that they'd actually done was published in a different journal. I'm sure we've overlooked some good candidates in, in some cases because of journals, but we've overlooked more good candidates because they didn't come from the right institution. We've overlooked more good candidates because they didn't work in a field that people found interesting at the time, right? Like, yes, it's true that, you know, like it, there is, you have to get attention at some level. We get hundreds of applications and you, everybody who succeeds at any stage in the process 
has gotten somebody's attention somehow. Either because the problem they're working on sounds really exciting, or because the you know they they know the lab's research that they that they're coming from, the the lab that they're coming from, and they've like have a good track record for producing you know strong scientists, or you know they recognize something in their CV that they found interesting. You know it is not like we sit there in the room and say, oh this one has a Nature paper, put them in the new pile. It's just not what happens. It might catch your eye. But I would also point out that like, it's already getting a paper like that in a high profile journal is already past a million bars that, right? Like the same things go on in selecting papers for high profile journals. The, 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 the screening is, is, is highly correlated. I don't think it would be that different. And indeed I've long advocated for doing this, that we should just strip journal names from the CVs of people when we're doing the initial screening and just see what pops out. I don't honestly don't think it would be that different. And uh, I, I think it wouldn't be that different because those journals are already like echoing the biases and tastes of, of science. It's very, very rare in my experience for somebody who doesn't tick any of the other boxes that would get you noticed for them to pop on our screen solely because they had a high impact paper. Right. It has happened, but it's 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 a very unusual. It's very unusual. And at the you know, by the time they're, you know, actually scrutinized as candidates where, you know, we're not judging them on the the where their papers were published. So I think people tend to overestimate how much of a role this plays in careers. And, and again, largely because they're confusing correlation and causation. It is true that there's a correlation between where people publish and where they get jobs, but that's because they're basically two different ways of saying the same thing. I also, I think that brings up an interesting question for new models of disseminating scientific research, which is say we've had something that seems very sort of egalitarian where, you know, everybody can sort of post their um, research paper on a kind of archive and then, you know, in addition to possibly incentivizing some kind of like formal peer review, there's also the ability for scientists to just go and like, you know, put, you know, I'm in this field and this, this is what I think of this paper. How I can, I can envision papers that are from people at high ranking institutions then, or papers that are from very well established labs sort of floating to the top of some kind of, of system like that, which already happens. So granted, this is right. Like uh, you've, you've just described, you just described journal publishing, right? It's not any worse than what's currently going on, but I think we would like that not to happen. So I guess like if we're thinking about how to do publishing better, is there a way to sort of de-emphasize those sort of traditional ideas of like prestige. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's tricky, in the, but I do think we can't, like it should be as strong a goal of as as making stuff freely free for participation in both a reader and an author should be a goal to to make sure that science is judged on its merits, not by its its authors, right? And And I think that we have exacerbated the problem of judging people based on who they are, not what they've done for 
for with the current publishing system. But obviously it doesn't mean that you just snap your fingers and you get a system that's better. Obviously like papers on that get attention on Twitter are not necessarily from high profile labs, but they're from high profile people, which is not always a, a step in the right direction. I would say it's not a step in the right direction. So it is a little bit more democratizing that if you're on, you know, a scientist who's not at a, you know, traditional top tier institution, but has a good following, has built a good following on Twitter, they can get their work noticed more easily on Twitter with a preprint than they can in a high profile journal. Like, like I think, so it is different. What I spend my time doing now is trying to take traditional publishing and graph and, and move it into this world. And in part of the reason is, I think we don't, we, I do think we should have full participation in peer review in the sense that Everybody who has a view on a paper should have a very clear and easy way to convey it through, you know, making, you know, without it, it has to be filtered through the lens of being fair and 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 on point. But but I do think we would be we would be far better off if every time somebody read a paper and had something interesting to say about it, they had a mechanism, not just a mechanism to share it, but some confidence that people would pay attention to what they have to say. And, you know, that that gets integrated into some kind of you know, growing consensus around the work. But I also think that it is valuable to have people, you know, have a layer of, I think of it as kind of grownups in the room kind of thing, like, you know, people who take it upon themselves to be, to solve that problem, to be fair, to to look for papers that are interesting, irrespective of who's who's written them. and And to try to do exactly, you know, to aspire at least, to do what we want to do here, which is to judge all papers based on their contents, not on, on on anything else. I think we haven't yet done it, but I think we should all start playing around with, you know, blind peer reviews and things, you know, things that are hard to do, but parts of the parts of the peer review process can be blinded to author identity and institution. And, and there's ways that I think we can do a lot better to make sure that we're not, you know, we're not missing good science. And then maybe we can also, I mean, it's outside of the publishing scope, but, you know, the real problem that comes up in a lot of, you know, nowadays in terms of biases is our expectations as scientists are that we're judging people with infinite resources. When we look at a paper, it's not unusual to ask people to do $100,000 worth of experiments in peer review, right? And like if someone's budget for doing science is far more limited, that our expectations are the biggest barrier to their participation, right? If if what it takes to do a paper in neuroscience now is to have access to a two-photon microscope, well, journal publishing is not the problem. The fact that we're we are wildly disproportionate uh, distribution of resources is is the problem. So I, I think we should do whatever we can to um, to correct that in publishing. But you know, we're not going to solve all the problems of inequitability in science just simply by through publishing, right? I think we we often look to publishing to solve problems in science that are deeper than that are just deeper than who gets published where. An important thing, like to keep in mind too, when we're going through that peer review process, is not just the cost, but how many times it's been rare that like the fundamental conclusion of a paper has been changed because I, I we jumped through a lot more hoops and made things flashier. But it doesn't often happen in my limited experience so far. Um, that, that fundamental conclusions change. Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is this is kind of what we're trying to get at at eLife now, which is to say, 
I do think having people read your papers and commenting on it is useful to the authors as well as to readers. I'm not this part of science where you read other people's work and you think about it and you comment on it and you make suggestions and you build your own. It's like absolutely integral to science uh, completely. So the question isn't really like, should we do that? We should do more of it. The question is, how do you convey the results of that? And in what context are those results conveyed? I, I think we have to move away from a world where the journals are deciding what is and isn't included in papers, what is and isn't um, worth communicating to the world and leave that in the hands of authors and let the journals decide and or editors or peer review or whatever this moves to, 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 add, to, to comment on it. I'm curious to hear from Brian, like from your perspective as an early career researcher and someone who cares a lot about open science, what are, what are your thoughts on sort of where science publishing needs to go? And like, what would, what do you think would work in terms of like where we can get to? It would be great if tomorrow we could all just agree on this and, and, and maybe that's a better way forward, but I don't see it happening that way. The reluctance too is, is, you know, you make it into this position and then it's precarious to navigate the next steps of promotion. It's, it might be easier, you know, 20 years from now, we do have to try. And so anything that moves the needle, I think is progress. And, and this is a slow shift to turn. I think, I don't think it's going to all of a sudden do a 180. It would be great if it did, but you know, so what, we do is kind of internally within the lab. What do we have control over? And so we, we make decisions, uh, try to make decisions that uh, align with our beliefs and, and what we feel is the direction we want to go. But also that each person in the lab is allowed to make that decision themselves too. Like we'll talk through it about pros and cons for this and that, but ultimately it's it's that trainee's career as well. And if they feel that they're going to be hurt, I'm, I'm not going to mandate that they do things a certain way. So I mean, that's kind of how I've approached it and I've been starting out here. But I, I think that there also needs to be acknowledgement from, I guess, more senior people that this is a direction you have to go to, that, that you know, that postdoc in the lab feels like the, like you mentioned before, that the faculty committee that's going to judge their application isn't going to exclude them if they don't have that paper from journal X, Y, and Z. And getting that information out there to reassure people that this isn't essential, right? That you can, you can make it without that it is going to gradually kind of turn the tide, I hope. I hope too, like there can be, because I think getting back to a topic we were talking about a lot earlier, that there's still the perception among trainees that this is important. I think the current generation of young scientists are less optimistic about changing it than than we were. And I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I understand like the world's like diff more difficult to navigate careers and things in science now. So like if, in, if anything, we're heading in the wrong direction in that regard, there's going to have to be some kind of shakeup for that to change. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like. Some things are good. Like bio, the rise of bioarchive has been good. Like we're, we're going in the right direction and the rise of Sci-Hub is good. Like like the world's better in many ways. ARC is is right. But the, but that that changing the culture of science is just, it's no, we're worse off than we were 25 years ago. People are more enthrall, enthralled with journal titles than they were when the internet came along. Like things are more, journals have more power and the way people think than they used to. You know, I don't know exactly what the solution is, but I do think we have to keep on kind of, we have to keep on pushing. It doesn't happen naturally. So I guess on that note, um, the question I'd like to end on for each of you then is, 
to, you know, to keep it on a uh, note of, if not optimism, at least like what we can do to keep pushing forward. Like what are your wrap up thoughts on like what we as scientists and consumers of science and can do to push this culture in a more positive direction? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's kind of the points that I've already, it's what can I influence or control with my tiny amount of power in this position and, and to do the most to do things fair. And then I think that kind of spreads across maybe departments or, you know, it, it, it can be, oh, well, that lab's doing that. And, and, and again, it, I'm sure that it's slow turn of the ship to, to gradually bring things towards it in a direction that you want to yeah, I mean, I think you probably underestimate your influence, right? You're talking to all the people you who are your colleagues and who you train and who you work with, right? If you do something and it reaches one person, like it's good, right? Like I think the ship isn't really turnable. I think parts of the ship have to be <laughs> discarded and blown up, right? Like, like I I think that what what has been my most sobering kind of observation over time is that it's not good enough to just say okay here's a problem like like i thought like really naively at the very beginning that like as i had been unaware of the problems of like the economics of publishing before the internet you know i the internet came along like i just figured well we're scientists we see problems all we have to do is really make people aware that there's a problem and we'll fix it okay that clearly didn't happen it also is really difficult to like people want, you know, people want the institutions of science to make, to change the rules, basically to say now it's okay to publish in, right? Like, like if, if the NIH just said tomorrow, we're, we're stripping journal titles off of, off of anything in our grant reviews, that would change. Like there's things that could happen at an institutional level, but the institutions look at the scientists and say, well, the scientists don't want this. They're not asking for this. They're like, yeah, sure. There's, there's Mike Eisen. He's screaming at me for 25 years, but like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's not representative. What we haven't successfully accomplished is for there to be a, a like a kind of demand for the system to change from, from people that is heard by institutions. So like where we've made progress in institutions, it's been because of kind of individuals seeing it as a really important thing to do within the context of their job, which, you know, by and large happened at, at places like HHMI and, and funders who like have a little bit more flexibility to move quickly and say, okay, we think now it's not in our interest to, to, to do this. The NIH stuff was long simmering, right? It took 25 years of getting members of Congress to insert things into funding language for the government and lobbyists who are you know, whispering in the ears of the right people in different administrations to try to get them to care about this as an issue. It took a long time to get to a place where now, like, there's some hope for for things to change. And yet, by and large, the scientific community has been silent about this, right? Like, there haven't been, like, a broad campaign to say, yeah, this is great. We need you to do this, right? Like, this, like, like, it costs nothing for scientists to to say, yeah, I would be great if the NIH actually did this, right? Like if the NIH actually made it so that we all playing under a different set of rules. Ultimately, that's what people want, right? I don't think this is the, the best solution, but they want the rules to change for them. So the NIH could do that, but they're not hearing from anybody saying, hey, you know what? We'd be all better off if the rules changed. Can you please do this, right? They're, what they're hearing from is publishers saying, you're going to strip us of our 
of our revenue. They're hearing from scientific societies saying, you know, we've been established for 150 years and our journal is important for our revenue stream. And if you do this, you're going to undermine our, right? They hear from people who want this to not happen. And very infrequently do they hear from scientists who want this to happen. So honestly, like, like if, if it were clearer to the people who make decisions at, in government funding agencies that this is something that scientists want, I think it would happen. And I, I think that right now, they can excuse all manner of slow slow action and stuff under the idea that this is just not, it's not popular in the community. And I think that this is what I was trying to get at with this thing that like, we, we accept this. There's no sense anywhere that the, that the community wants a different system. And, you know, if people want it fixed, they need that we need it more to be more visible, that we want this system to be different. Students can have an influence locally and and globally by like by like really making it uncomfortable for their for their institutions to continue operating in the way that they do. I've been really impressed by like what students have done to try to make the culture of labs better. Like there's there is power out there. It just has to be exercised. Well, I think with that, um, we're going to uh leave this discussion. As we were saying, we could probably keep talking about this for hours and hours. Thank you both. And thank you to Alexandra, who unfortunately had to get off the call um, for uh, joining us for this round table. And thank you to all of you watching live on YouTube. And yeah, with that, um, we'll see you uh, for the next episode of In Plain English.